You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. And I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute for their ongoing partnership to make this podcast possible. Today's podcast is about an issue we see frequently in our celiac disease clinic, getting access to safe food at school. For the last 10 years, our program has worked with patients and families to set up accommodations in schools, and there is definitely a huge range in availability and accommodations offered in the school district local to us in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, but we also see this all around the country. Before I bring in our special guest, I want to talk for a moment about what schools are required to do. There are federal laws um, that govern what schools, childcare, and education programs to receive federal funding are required to do to accommodate kids with celiac disease. Section 504A of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 prohibits discrimination in all institutions receiving federal financial assistance, which includes public schools or any other institution that receives federal funding, on the basis of disability, including certain diseases, including celiac disease. This law would require schools or other childcare institutions that receive this money to remove all barriers from learning, which include accommodating a child's gluten-free diet. Now, these accommodations can look very different. It may look like providing gluten-free food options for students, unlimited bathroom access, washing of hands, cleaning of surfaces, many, many, many things. Um, But as our team has seen time and time again, the accommodations vary greatly and often leave parents wanting more. To help me discuss this very important topic, I have Joanna McMahon from our education team in the studio with me. Joanna is one of our community education specialists and our 504 plan coordinator for the program. She has been working with a number of our patient families and collecting very valuable data on this topic. Welcome, Joanna. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Hi, Vanessa. So glad to be here. And thanks for the great intro. Such valuable information and input on that. So I want you to start out by just telling us a little bit of background about 504 plan expectations and how celiac disease accommodations could be interpreted by a school cafeteria. Oh, geez. Well, (laughs) so as you just mentioned, they can vary greatly. Um, So the 504 plan expectation is interesting. Um, Something also that I think is important um, is just the difference even in what um, the 504 plan is, even in comparison to an IEP, because I feel like that comes up a lot in meetings. Um, So an IEP would be um, relevant to academic interventions in the classroom, anything that could impact um, learning or academic uh, curriculum accommodations, whereas the 504 impacts anything related to life um, or different kind of ways of, um, you know, physical functioning. So anything that could improve quality of life. So for instance, celiac disease would obviously fall under that because um, eating is a life function. Absolutely. (laughs) So it definitely would fall under that part of care. Um, So it definitely qualifies. So that is important to know as you're going into these eligibility meetings and a lot of times they sit there and go round and round in circles trying to decide if 
celiac disease does even fall under 504 plan guidelines sometimes. So that's where at least also the um, opportunity for us to work with patients on this and be an advocate for them in the room attending some of these meetings does end up being really helpful sometimes because parents sometimes get intimidated by this process of almost having to defend the need for a 504 plan accommodation um, when obviously life um, functioning is impacted. So um, how ceiling accommodations could be interpreted in a school cafeteria? Well, again, that could vary greatly. Um, a lot of it determines on how the school is equipped um, and educated, honestly, to handle providing food. Um, some foods are, de- uh, some re- schools have definitely been more receptive to that, whether it's having patient families bring their own food and put into storage with access to, for the patient, um, whereas others are open to now bringing in food from outside that is gluten-free. So we're kind of in a flux on what we're seeing in schools. So I want to go back to what you were saying about the IEPs and the IHPs. So for people who don't know what those are, it's an individual uh, education plan or an individual health plan. And I actually learned something really interesting in a meeting we had um, a couple weeks ago at Children's from a school nurse. So I feel like we get asked all the time, uh, the two of us in clinic, you know, yes, can you do. have one or the other or all three or which one is really the important one? And the way this nurse described it to me was the best answer I've ever heard. So the IEP and the IHP are great for managing a specific disease, but they don't necessarily outline specific accommodations to overcome the life function disability. And with celiac disease, um, it's all, it's about the food and it's about coming into contact with gluten. So when problems come up, um, the 504 plan is the only legally enforceable way to require an accommodation be made. So if there was something happening under an IEP or an IHP that the family wasn't happy with or that the school wasn't meeting that they were supposed to do, they could not bring that in front of the conflict resolution team and have it be enforced. Whereas with the 504 plan, it could be because it's legally enforceable. And I think that's something that is definitely not publicized enough. Um, and a lot of schools, I feel, even almost try to bury that. And I'm not sure if it's like, I, I obviously want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but um, I have a lot of patients coming and saying, like, well, the school's telling me they have the individualized health plan, that's enough, I don't need a 504. Um And again, that comes back to almost where that advocate is coming in to be really important because parents are not really sure um, they're getting intimidated and feeling that they have to fight for something sometimes. Um, So I do think that's something that I I really do hope to see resolved more in schools in the future um, that doesn't become almost that point of needing to to continue to fight for this right that is is deservedly available or should be. Absolutely. So let's talk about some challenges. What are some of the most common issues you see schools facing in meeting a student's gluten-free accommodations? Education. Um, I feel that uh, the biggest thing a lot of times is I don't think schools honestly even know all of the um, possible implications a student with celiac disease might face. Um, A lot of times they continue to use the word allergy Mm-hmm. Um, and not understanding that it's an actual autoimmune disease that affects them more than just like, you know, um, 
possible vomiting or diarrhea, or even understanding the, um, the consequences of what would occur if a student is exposed. Um, a lot of times they don't realize um, all of the potential cross-contamination issues. They think if just a student is, you know, able to eat food, that would be all that would be necessary. Not really understanding that um, all the ways that it could come into contact in the cafeteria, it could come into contact in materials. They, they do not realize just how much goes into it, obviously. Exactly. So there was a recent study by the Ministry of Public Health in Italy regarding evaluating methods for schools providing gluten-free foods. Can you tell me a little bit about that study and how it might be relevant to what we see in schools here in the United States? Well, it was really interesting in that it brought in different ways schools were handling um, providing gluten-free food. There were some that were trying to actually um, provide specific areas to provide school, uh, provide food in-house. So they had like dedicated facilities that they were trying to um, actually prepare the food from scratch there. There were others that were trying to prepare it in the same kitchens they already were using. And then there were others that also were bringing in outside food sources that were considered gluten-free for the students. Um, and the Ministry of Public Health was then evaluating them on um, the availability, uh, the um, conscientious level, the education, um, just essentially how successful they felt they were in doing these accommodations and providing food. So, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay, so I was just going to say, I think it would be relevant because we do see each of these different methods um, being used in some of the different as well. And again, there is definitely some of the challenges that this, you know, these, um, these incur, these different methods. And then there are also the successes that come along with it. Absolutely. There's always both, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. And I also think that it could be relevant or helpful because I feel that a lot of the school districts are kind of almost looking at it that it's this overwhelming challenge that they can't provide food because, well, once they perhaps do hear about the issues of cross-contamination and all the possible ramifications of that, they're not even willing to possibly try and provide the food or make the accommodations because they feel there's no way they could do it safely. Right. So seeing that there are different choices of how this food could be provided, whether it is bringing it in from an outside source or um, maybe just shipping out the part of the gluten-free food that needs to be brought in, um, there are ways they could do it if we possibly could just find a way to steer them in the correct direction. Absolutely. What do you think is the biggest frustration that parents feel in working with schools? I think it would have to be... Um, just being told that it can't be done or that they do, as I said, have to feel they need to fight for so much of it. Mm -hmm. um, there is still so many ways that I think that schools are trying to potentially take the easiest route for them to um, kind of, you know, uh, cover themselves from any potential harm um, or lawsuit, I guess. And so they're just trying to essentially say, well, it, it's all on the parents. But when um, a student is obviously spending the majority of their time in the school building to have to have everything kind of fall back on the parent trying to find out um, if there is any 
upcoming events that they want their kid to be included in. Um, or even just being able to, if, if the kid, God forbid, um, drops their lunch as they're getting off the school bus, that they're not going to not have anything to eat for the entire day because the school at least will have something available for them. Um, it just shouldn't be quite so, um, all encompassing that there's this responsibility for this kid to find a way just to get through the day and and have their food to eat on top of all the academic challenges that already face them. Right. Are there any specific issues you see occurring that show a need for improvement in the schools? Besides, obviously, all these ones you've already mentioned with the <laughs> food services and such. <laughs> I think I'd have to say um, there is some discrimination where they're not even realizing it. Um, so uh, first off, I think that in, in addition to the um, not wanting to necessarily make these accommodations, I think there's also the um, what of the answers I see that comes up often or the proposals is essentially just either um, sitting it out or coming up with some kind of way that ends up isolating the child. Right. I really think we need to be more aware of the emotional ramifications these students are facing as well. Um, to make sure that these kids are not attending a class celebration where every other child is sitting there having a cupcake and this kid's given a lollipop. Or they're being put at these... Um, you know, separate tables away from everything or being um, given plastic gloves and told that they can't participate in an art project. These things are going to end up psychologically impacting these kids as well. And we have to think of how can we make them feel as included, as normal, and um, as much of a kid as possible, as well as providing them with food that's safe for them to eat. Absolutely. Now, we've talked a lot about things that aren't going so well. What have you seen that has been done particularly well? Are there any districts that are excelling in providing accommodations? D.C. public schools. Um, I have to say I have been unbelievably impressed with how D.C. public schools is beginning to handle gluten-free accommodations. Um, in particular, there have been a couple of schools that are reaching out for trainings on a regular basis to get their, all of their staff, not even just food staff but their entire staff um, educated about celiac disease and how it impacts students. There also are a number of the schools that are actually starting to try and um, prepare their food in-house and take it upon themselves to prepare gluten-free food um, that is naturally gluten-free so that uh, the majority of their students can eat it without it necessarily having to be, oh, this is just a particular gluten-free item that is on the side for this kid one day or another. Um, and I think that's where, in general, the schools can hopefully learn to make these accommodations up front in a less expensive way by not having to be specially ordering things um, that may or may not be eaten, depending upon the gluten-free student wanting to buy it that day or not. If you can just make the majority of food you're providing um, naturally gluten-free just by changing a couple of key ingredients – it's more cost effective and it's better for everybody. Um, the other thing too is um, there are a number of students that um, are reliant on the school system for their food. 
So if God forbid one of these kids is then also diagnosed with celiac disease and they're potentially on, say, the free and reduced lunch, or they're just have working parents that really cannot um, take it upon themselves to have the time to provide food for them every day, to then have to find those accommodations at school, um, it makes a world of difference when the school is so un- able to hopefully provide this gluten-free food for them. I had a, stu- um, a DC a school kid at, in DC schools that I called them, I talked with them, they did backflips to accommodate and said, it's done. We have his gluten-free food available for him for breakfast and lunch. And it just makes such a difference in that patient's life. For sure. Do you think that there's progress being made in this issue? And, you know, what? how are you feeling about the future? I really hope we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's progress. Um, I think that um, the fact that there are parents who are willing to really bring it to light and the fact that I do think there is more widespread attention to the issue um, and the fact that I just do think there are more people being diagnosed on a regular basis now mm-hmm. that I think the education is hopefully starting to kind of filter out um, more widespread and that schools are starting to realize that this is a, a real issue. The fact that I think we're up to, you know, multiple students potentially in one class is just showing that um, it's not going away, you know? Yep. So um, these accommodations do need to be made. <laughs> For sure. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a legitimate issue. <laughs> what advice do you have for parents if they're experiencing difficulties with getting um, gluten-free food for their kids at school? Well, for starters, I'd say um, make sure you have the 504 plan and not just the individualized health plan. Um, I would say reach out for help. That's why, you know, we at the Celiac Disease Program are there for you to to guide you through the 504 plan process. Um, We're willing to advocate for you, too. If you get paperwork signed, you can even allow us to call the school on your behalf and speak to administrators and counselors for you and and work with them. the other thing, too, is if at least you have gotten the 504 plan um, on the books, we then also can go to resolution compliance departments if necessary. Um, any of these counties are also obligated by law to have a resolution and compliance department. Unfortunately, this is not necessarily widespread knowledge either, but they are there to essentially make sure um, ADA claims are not being filed, or if they are, that they're at least being investigated to make sure there is no discrimination occurring um, and that accommodations are being um, met, that if you have a 504 plan, they are being upheld. So um, there are at least resources you can use to make sure that you're not alone in the process. Wow, that was a lot of great information, Joanna. Um, I know that this is going to really help all of our listeners uh, with kids improve their quality of life at school. And to all of our listeners, please remember that our education team at our celiac disease program at Children's National is here to help you. Even if you live outside of the D.C. area, we can help. So if you would like to reach us um, for questions or help with getting a 504 plan, please reach out to us at celiac at childrensnational.org. Well, we are all out of time for today. I really hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast and we will talk to you again next time. 